Welcome to the 364th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome medical anthropologist Emma Koval, author of Trapped in the Gap, Doing Good in Indigenous Australia. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. An update on our website and archive. There is a team of people working incredibly hard on this project. Just to give a quick shout out to Bucky Stanton and Shivani Patel and Eleanor Mays and Huna Kume and then many others who you will meet later on COVID calls. They have been working incredibly hard and we've had to push the deadline back, but we're aiming for December 1st to have the full COVID calls archive available, including every episode in audio and in video and access to a large number of the corrected transcripts. Maybe not all of the transcripts by that point, but we can make transcripts of every COVID calls episode available. In addition, we will have artwork by Gonzalo Basagalupe, and we will have many other special features on this website and archive. So please watch for that, the COVID Calls archive launching December 1st. As of today, October 25th, 2021, there are 4,948,516 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Luis Fernando Arias, Colombian indigenous leader, dies at 41. This was written by Megan Janetsky and appeared February 24th, 2021 in the New York Times. Like so many indigenous people in Colombia, Luis Fernando Arias suffered acutely from the armed conflict that tore his nation apart for decades. Paramilitary fighters in 2001 rolled into his community and killed his grandfather. Three years later, they killed an uncle of his and threatened his father, forcing his family to flee to the capital of Bogota. He had to live with all the pain of the indigenous people in the country, his father Jaime Arias said in an interview. But he wasn't scared. It gave him strength to fight. It was from that moment he wanted to fight for the rights of his people. Luis Arias rose to become senior advisor to the National Indigenous Organization of Colombia, an influential voice for indigenous rights, peace, and environmental preservation. His role effectively made him its president. He died on February the 13th, 2021, in a clinic in the coastal city of Barranquilla after having a heart attack. Family members and indigenous leaders said they attributed his death as well to complications of the coronavirus. He was 41. 
left us with beautiful memories so we don't have to live on crying. Elulia Yagari, a co-founder of the indigenous organization and a member of the Embera people, said in a statement, their memories of strength and of bravery. Arias, a member of the Kankwamo people, was born on November the 4th, 1979, in the town of Chimisquemena in Colombia's Sierra Nevada. His father was a tribal leader, and his mother, Fanny Arias, was a farmer, an artist. As children, Luis and his seven siblings helped their mother farm and weave traditional bags. He attended the popular University of Cesar in Valladupar, a nearby city. He studied law and became an activist on behalf of indigenous rights, but was unable to complete his degree when violence by paramilitary fighters forced him to flee. Mr. Arias began working with the National Indigenous Organization in 2005, organizing political action and protests. His driving ambition, friends and family said, was to ensure that Colombia's 102 indigenous groups had a place at the table in deciding the country's future. He was a delegate representing indigenous peoples at negotiations in Havana in Cuba that led to peace between the Colombian government and guerrillas of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia in 2016, raising his voice to make sure that the peace agreement safeguarded the rights of both indigenous and Afro-Colombian communities. As a result of efforts by him and other delegates, the accords included an ethnic chapter aimed at restoring indigenous rights. He brought the plight of those communities to an international stage, testifying at a congressional hearing in Washington and speaking privately with legislators. Along with his father, Mr. Arias is survived by his mother, his siblings, his wife, Cindy Paola Arias, and his two children, Jaime Luis and Luis Manuel. The article was Luis Fernando Arias, Colombian indigenous leader dies at 41. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Emma Koval. Emma Koval is professor of anthropology at the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. She is a cultural and medical anthropologist who previously worked as a medical doctor and public health researcher in indigenous health. Her research interests lie at the intersection of STS and indigenous studies and have recently focused on the many iterations and resonances of indigenous DNA. She's authored over 100 publications, including the monograph Trapped in the Gap, Doing Good in Indigenous Australia, and the collection Cryopolitics, Frozen Life in a Melting World. Her current book project is entitled Haunting Biology, Science, and Indigeneity in Australia. Emma Koval, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I'd like to begin the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Well, I'm calling from Melbourne in Australia, down the bottom, and uh, we have just come out on a Friday night, um, come Friday midnight, come out of the longest lockdown in the world. Um, collectively, we've had we had seven lockdowns, um, but collectively it was 263 days, which uh, was more than the Buenos Aires, which had 234 days. So. We've beat, beaten everyone for lockdown. And that lockdown was to achieve 
a, a zero COVID target? I mean, help us understand the context of that. It's really, I'm not sure if it's a right or wrong approach, but it's so extreme compared to what other countries have pursued. Yeah, it has. So we started with a zero lockdown, uh, a, a suppression and elimination um, in all through 2020, um, which was successful in that we did get down to COVID zero in the whole country. Um, so similar to New Zealand and some other countries in Southeast Asia where the idea was just to get rid of it um, while, while we wait for a vaccine. Um, and that worked, but at the massive economic cost, you know, many, many tens of billions of dollars in economic stimulus to support people. So we did actually support people who were not able to work or not able to run their businesses um, and complete closing of the borders, um, both uh, international borders, but also borders between the states. So it's been quite a time. Um, and then this year we've had a very delayed uh, vaccine rollout compared to other, uh, you know, OECD countries. We've been near the bottom of the, of the vaccine rollout um, uh, league tables, although now we are doing extremely well. Um, and it's all been about supply. There's been a lot of um, criticism of our federal government uh, the, so the state governments are responsible for most things related to uh, COVID and, and public health controls, but the federal government was responsible for quarantine and responsible for uh, obtaining vaccines, and they failed really badly at both of those. So it's been, uh, yeah, a really challenging time. Uh, the comparisons to South Korea, where I am, are pretty apt, I think. Uh, both countries, although they didn't pursue a zero COVID strategy here in South Korea, but um, very strong infection control measures from early on, but then left uh, and both very technologically sophisticated, wealthy countries. Um, but maybe without the biotechnology um, capacity of some other countries that are wealthy and have been left in a similar situation. Do you have vaccine on demand there in Melbourne yet or not quite? Yeah, so this kind of relates to vaccine sovereignty, which, um, you know, some countries do really well, like like India, although then still actually supplying the country was another uh, challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, and Taiwan has, has had attempts at vaccine sovereignty. Um, so in Australia, we had quite a few vaccines in development. Um, we had one that was very... Um, promising in the University of Queensland, but unfortunately at a late stage, it was found to cross-react with uh, the HIV, with an HIV test. So basically it gave you a, a positive HIV test or it may. So it was done, scratched, um, which was hugely disappointing. Uh, and then we have had local um, manufacture of AstraZeneca. So the AstraZeneca was our big, um, was another, uh, our other big, uh, bet and that worked out really badly because of this rare very rare side effect of uh, you know, thrombosis um, and deaths which came out to about one in a million doses but in the context of very low COVID rates and very low COVID deaths this was uh, unacceptable basically so the AstraZeneca has been not very useful overall. Just one more thing about the lockdown before we move on from that um, that part of it. You said that you had set the record there. Uh, is there is the, in, in that sense, I mean, you're an anthropologist, so you're attentive to these 
COVID cultures. Is it something about the endurance of that which makes the experience for people in Melbourne somehow special? Are there reference points and ways of talking about that lockdown that might, I mean, most people experienced it when I did in New Jersey, for example, it was, you know, a couple of months. Um, and then leaders in the United States, including those in, in liberal states, were eager to lift that with restrictions. But, um, you know, people still talk about that period as if they were living through a war. I can only mm -hmm. imagine the kinds of cultural, you know, uh, language or or shared customs that must have be must still be circulating around that length of lockdown there. Yeah, well, we're all still pretty traumatized. <laughs> it's still very early days, only three days out of it. Um, my kids are still not back at school. One of them was at school today, which is uh, amazing. So tomorrow is actually my first day when both kids will be at school. Um, for you know, mo most most of the last two years, we've all been. Um, at home together, um, yeah, the, the mental health um, toll has been great. We, we haven't had an increased suicide rate apparently, which is really good, but there's absolutely been massive increase in demand for mental health services, particularly things like um, adolescent girls and eating disorders. And um, I think particularly for the adolescents, it's been um, incredibly difficult. So um but we have had very low rates of death very low rates of COVID. so this last year the, the the lockdowns were all about elimination this year they've all they've been about protecting the health system while we increase our vaccination so now we are um one of those countries um and in many states in australia they're still facing this shifting from a COVID zero mentality to a living with COVID mentality, which I suppose places like the UK and Europe and the US, it's impossible to even imagine that, but it is, it is very challenging. But no, it's been, it's been incredibly difficult. It's also been incredibly politicised between states. So our most popular state is, is just to the north of us. So we're in Melbourne's the capital of Victoria and Sydney, which everyone knows Sydney as well, is capital of New South Wales. And we have a, a conservative state government in New South Wales and a, a small L liberal state government in um, Victoria. And lockdown was incredibly politicised. Um, so New South Wales, uh, their, their conservative government were, you know, re relatively resisting lockdown mm -hmm. and um, led to our third wave. So anthropologically, it's, it's been incredibly um, exciting, really despite all the um all the um you know frustration of not being able to travel and having my kids at home but because of these low numbers and maybe it's the same in south korea we know so many small details about every single escape of the virus so there was a limo driver in i think it was june who um was was met, was probably supposed to be wearing a mask, but the legislation, the public health directions just created a loophole because he was a contractor. So this limo driver who was driving airport staff um, wasn't wearing a mask and he has led to uh, lockdown for many, many months of most of Australia. That, uh, what an interesting point. And it's one early on here in South Korea, there was a particular church community that had um, 
open services during a time in which, uh, you know, public health measures were being put in place. And that community had, it was like a super spreader community became a pretty infamous event um, here. So these large spread events are part of the pub, the memory, the popular memory in South Korea, whereas in the United States, where I was at the beginning of the pandemic, maybe in the first month, you could have stories like that, but beyond that, totally impossible. Just to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to anthropologist Emma Koval today. Emma, I want to ask you the um, question uh, I've been asking everyone also about uh, your memories of this time. It's kind of an impossible question, but maybe you could share a particular moment that's really resonant for you of this time. Well, yeah, I think um, getting used to um, being at home and um, with my adolescent uh, girls who really would rather not be at home all the time with their mum and their dog. So that's certainly been um, day to day to day a big part of it. Um, just the the kind of the roller coaster of uh, waiting for the daily numbers, particularly when we've been um, going for elimination for so long, nearly two years. So. What are the numbers going to be? When is the press conference? Um, you know, what are the, just the, all of the news is all about COVID. Um, so I suppose just, yeah, immersing myself in the, the COVID scape and not feeling like there was no escape from it. Um, and just, yeah, how quiet everything has been. But I think Melburnians, you, you were saying before, Melburnians is what we call ourselves, there has been a huge amount of solidarity and um, a huge amount of those, um, you know, like the neighbourhood practices where people, you know, put things in their front yard so that young children walking in the neighbourhood can be entertained and, you know, happy, happy things like that. Maybe we can talk a little bit about some of your work that predates the pandemic um and then we'll talk about some of the connections and where you find yourself with your with your work now and of course we're going to talk about vaccines as well because of a recent um seminar that you were part of but i wanted to ask you about your work on indigenous dna and the book trapped in the gap doing good in indigenous australia can you tell us a little bit about that work yeah so that that book trapped in the gap was um based on my dissertation research which was um, an ethnography of a public health research institute in the north of Australia. Um, and it ended up being a ethnography of a group of people I called white anti-racists, who I also identify as one of, um, who are, you know, educated left-wing people um, with in the health professions um, and research who are trying to um, improve Indigenous health, but on the terms of Indigenous people. And I found that the experiences of this group of people um, was a, a microcosm of the broader tensions of trying to enact justice in a settler colony for uh, Indigenous people. Um, and probably the, the, my, my forthcoming book has, is more easily related to um, the pandemic. Maybe you Should can I tell, tell us about that. Yeah, please. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so the book um, Haunting Biology, Science and Indigeneity in Australia is um, it, one thing it is, is a, is a history of the collection of specimens from Indigenous people across the 20th century and up to the present. 
So blood, bones, hair, placentas, you name it, it's been collected. Mm. Um, and more broadly, it's about the um, making biological knowledge about Indigenous people and the politics of that over time um, and the different disciplines over time that have uh, participated in that, including um, my own, again, my own um, implications in um, Indigenous genomics, which is a, a field that's really getting off the ground um, just in the last few years um, and under Indigenous control. But the link um, with the pandemic is that there has been um, a vaccine hesitancy, a significant vaccine hesitancy amongst Indigenous communities. Um, they were, we had, you know, way back when, a million years ago, when we started the vaccine roller, we had 1A groups, which were the highest, um, uh, highest priority. Um, and 1B and Indigenous people were right up there, but the vaccine rollout just really didn't happen. Um, so we were left in the, the recent outbreak um, starting in June from that limo driver in New South, in New South Wales, which was not adequately locked down, uh, unfortunately, because of this political, um, because of politics and um, business interests. So that we had the like Louis Vuitton stores were still open uh, when everything else was closed. Um, it was, yeah, that, that's another really strong memory of the pandemic is extreme wow. frustration as, at seeing the um, politics um, getting in the way of a public health response. Um, but uh, we have had, yeah, significant vaccine hesitancy, which has led to outbreaks in Aboriginal communities. So watching it go from that limo driver then to the kind of wealthy suburbs of Sydney, still not locked down. When it got into the poorer suburbs of Sydney, then lockdown happened and was actually um, extremely uh, harsh in these particular areas where the poorer people live. And then it spread to Aboriginal communities in the far west of the state. And that was just, just so heartbreaking because it was so preventable and Aboriginal communities had done an incredible job um, stopping the virus getting in um, for so many months and you know for most of the most of the pandemic um, and the vaccine hesitancy is really about history it's really reconnected to that history of uh, scientific research on indigenous people which was done um, in a ways that uh, objectified them that contributed to um, their oppression directly through um, through policies uh, and yeah, so that that is still playing out today. Well, we're definitely going to want to read that book, and and you have some people can find, and I'll put up some links, some really nice articles that appeared in the conversation just in recent years, also about some of these same issues and um, terms around like medical repatriation and this this process of of returning these specimens. I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because I think you to connect vaccine hesitancy in the present and public health disparities in the present to um, Aboriginal experiences with medical research in the not too distant past is a really important link to make. So set that table for us a little bit, like who was doing the collecting of specimens and for what, and for what purpose? And then maybe we can talk about why and how those specimens actually get returned. Yeah. So, um, one of the collections that I've done a lot of work on and some um, co-authored work with Joanna Radin, who's a historian um, at, of medicine at Yale, 
um, Australian historian of science, I should say. So um, that was around blood collections, um, predominantly in the, the middle of the 20th century. So there was a worldwide program, the International Biological Program, that ran from 1964 to 1974. And the aim was to take stock of the biosphere. Uh, in the tradition of the International Geophysical Year that had been such a huge success um, uh, about a decade earlier. Um, and the one of the seven arms was about human diversity and taking stock of, of human biological diversity. Uh, and this involved mostly focusing on Indigenous groups um, and you know other groups with particular interesting physical characteristics like people living at high altitudes um, and uh, you know millions of blood samples were collected and this coincided of course with technological advances um, importantly being able to um, transport blood samples through mobile refrigeration back to the lab which was developed in the 1950s through the uh, methods to um, transport um, bull semen to standardise the meat industry. That's Joanna's Raiden's work, but I just love that. <laughs> it's just <laughs> these incredible little pieces of history. Um, and also the, uh, the starch gel electrophoresis, which was another really important technology that allowed um, different kinds of proteins to be compared from around the world. And um, I suppose it's like the, the next generation of blood groups. Um, after blood group research uh, developed in the early 20th century. So there was a whole world of, of different kind of protein types, which uh, was a, a proxy for looking at genetic differences. So these samples were collected from yeah, every, every continent in the world, um, and no human samples from Antarctica, but, uh, and they, a, a lot of samples from Indigenous Australians, um, and they went to centres. So in Australia, they went to Canberra, to um, the uh, John Kern School of Medical Research, um, and there they stayed. Uh, and uh, in an article in American Anthropologist, um, Joanna and I kind of tracked the afterlives of um, two collections, one of Colton Gijasek, who's another a really important and famous and infamous scientist from the mid 20th century. And one from Bob Kirk, who was his good friend and the kind of Australian counterpart. Um, so there are two collections, one at SUNY Binghamton today um, and one in, in Canberra at the Australian National University. And some of these two collections held samples of the same people. Uh, and it, like aliquots, little pieces of the sample, some held in different places. And these were, though, under extremely different uh, socio-political conditions. So while the uh, freezer had preserved the samples over many, many decades, the conditions outside the freezer had, had changed hugely um, comparatively between the US and Australia. So in Australia, uh, the uh, Indigenous activists and Indigenous organisations, which were forming at a huge rate in the 1970s and then in the 1980s, um, they looked at the issue of repatriation of human remains. So this was, and Australia was very uh, early and foundational in a movement which is now worldwide um, of Indigenous peoples trying to seek the return of, of their ancestors from museums. Uh, and there was an interesting way that um, these blood samples in the freezer began to be implicated in uh, other questions of repatriation. And so that 
awareness of those samples and the discourse around that repatriation um, make that connection then to Aboriginal vaccine hesitancy or more the medical hesitancy more generally? Yeah, well, the vaccine is really the vaccine hesitancy. The link is that uh, research and medical care, but particularly, you know, the research that leads to advances in medical care depends on a, a social contract. So the whole idea of altruism is that um, the citizen uh, participates in research because they may may personally benefit, but their their polity will benefit, That whether that's their, their nation or humankind more generally. And we found with um, you know, so-called minorities uh, all all around the world, um, they uh, whether that's you know African Americans or or Latinx people um, or Indigenous people from all around the world, they they haven't really got a lot out of the social contract. So they're kind of not really down on the social contract because they have not benefited from it. That um, what we we as in kind of white middle class people can think of very easily invisibly as you know what we we benefit from society um groups that that really uh have not benefited from it um and have actually had uh research and even healthcare um as something that has uh led to furthered their oppression and, and inequalities want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to medical anthropologist Emma Koval today. We're talking now about the history of medical sample taking among Aboriginal peoples and what that has meant for vaccine hesitancy in Australia. Just one more piece of that I wanted to ask you about before we talk about vaccines a little bit more um, is around the DNA tests and sort of the discourse around that in Australia. And I, I'm thinking about, you know, in, in the United States, certainly, and of course, Alondra Nelson and others have written about these DNA tests um, quite beautifully. And and it became a, in the United States, starting a few years ago, this sort of like a, like a ancestry.com sort of approach, like course everyone will want to know where they come from right and and so this is just an extension of doing your family tree is also to get your your family dna profile and of course that raises so many complicated questions um at the individual level at the at the family level and then of course at the community and population level most of which i think people were not prepared for when they started doing those kinds of tests i don't know how that connects to to your work necessarily, but I'm particularly interested in how that's played out in in Aboriginal communities or people discovering that maybe they are also connected with that community in ways they hadn't realized. No, that is a big, I'm super interested in that and have published on that. Um, so an article in uh, New Genetics and Society um, and another one in um, Human Organization in the uh, Applied Anthropology Journal. and. One other one that I, I just, uh, ethnic and racial studies, I, I believe. Um, 
about yeah so my i mean just to take a, one step back my so my work really has focused around indigenous dna uh you know in in scare quotes um but i've really looked and engaged with uh the full spectrum of of how that um how that is you know refracted in in social in 21st century social life so i've engaged in in a precision medicine and projects um, not so much ethnographically, but more practically, um, trying to participate as a medical anthropologist and social scientist in projects that try and uh, include Indigenous people in the precision medicine revolution and not actually make health inequalities worse. Um, also working with ancient DNA scientists um, and trying to understand all the, the politics of using ancient DNA, which which relates uh, quite directly to questions of genetic ancestry and genetic ancestry testing. Also, I've looked at epigenetics as well, which is another story. But the genetic ancestry is, yeah, it's really, really interesting. And it does have a COVID connection, um, <laughs> which I can actually make. Ancestry and sam samples and data about Native American ancestry which has been available for a very long time and those uh, direct to consumer tests have been available for a long time um, really related to this history of indigenous people in australia um, resisting medical research and also having a lot more power um, so this is you know another important historical lay layer that in the us and we'll just talk about the us now rather than other parts of of north america um, tribal sovereignty has been, uh, you know, far, it's far stronger than any sovereignty rights that in, any Indigenous people in Australia have, but it's very uh, tribal specific and the federal Indigenous structures are pretty weak is my impression. Similar, just as the federal, all federal governmental structures in the US are pretty weak uh, in many ways. In Australia, uh, individual tribal sovereignty or our equivalent of it is is you know, quite weak. We have something called native title, which is a, a fairly um, poor form of, of land rights for most Indigenous people. But our federal structures of Indigenous representation are much stronger than the US. Um, so there has been Indigenous control of uh, how research should be undertaken in Indigenous communities for a long time, really it's growing in the 80s and really since the 90s. So there hasn't been a lot of Indigenous samples and data, genetic data out there, like there's been almost none. Um, so that has meant that there hasn't been any uh, direct-to-consumer tests for Aboriginal ancestry. There's been a couple, but they've been extremely uh, scientifically weak. Mm. But that changed. Uh, so Ancestry.com um, just released, well, just as the pandemic started, like the end of March last year, updated their um, algorithm to include an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ancestry estimate. So, and, you know, I was talking to the company about this, so I do know, I uh, can talk about it for a long time, but um, the, the short story is that because of the pandemic, partly because of the because of the pandemic, don't really know what the impact of that is going to be. Um, but it's likely to be significant in the long term, in that 
um, a lot of Australians will discover that they have Aboriginal ancestry that they did not expect and that the the impact of that on um, on Indigenous identification, on service delivery is is a much more uncertain in Australia than it would be again in the US because we have a much more open definition of indigeneity. Um, we don't have things like tribal roles. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of watch this space. Well, thank you for going into that into that detail. I mean, I guess that of course there's so many possible outcomes to that. I mean, one one might look at that and say, oh, well, this is the basis upon which health solidarity is built and civil rights are discussed and and all kinds of high-flown ideas around that. Um, uh, I guess I'm not, I haven't seen that kind of result in the United States when people discover African or indigenous heritage in their DNA. But um, again, I think it also speaks to this overall problem of identifying people you know, to somehow sort of move from that, from the DNA test to race and make definitive claims about what race is, is a highly problematic space. So but I'm fascinated to, to see that you're, you're doing that work and connecting it also to COVID. Um, but just one more piece of that, I mean, maybe brings us back to vaccines a little bit. What has that meant then in terms of vaccine um, trials? Is that also just not been conducted in Aboriginal communities or? Well, we I think we've had very little action in vaccine trials in Australia. Um, I will, there certainly hasn't been any major trials. So the trials have, have not taken place here. We did initially have a huge amount of money um, as all uh, you know, industrialized countries did into COVID research. So we, I can't some tens of millions of dollars into different projects, and we set up all sorts of projects, and then we eliminated it. <laughs> so we did. We certainly participated in arms of international COVID trials, but we didn't get to contribute anything. Um, in terms of, you know, different uh, treatments for COVID, um, different ways of um, being able to, you know, apps to allow people to be treated at home and so on. So, you know, in a, it was a good thing that that money was probably wasted because, um, you know, we, we haven't had the, the, the mortality um, or the morbidity to any degree of any other country, of, you know, of con other countries. Um, yeah. But absolutely, yeah, the, uh, Indigenous people would not be the first people that you would go to to try and do uh, a trial of vaccines. Um, but And I think I am not aware of any um, evidence that vaccine efficacy varies by, you know, ethnicity, race, geography. But um, I'm not an immunologist. I might be wrong. So just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to anthropologist Emma Koval. And I want to switch to a different topic, not entirely different, but you participated in a, a recent uh, seminar titled Can Vaccine Nationalism and Vaccine Diplomacy Coexist? And um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I'm particularly interested in, we've talked about those ideas a lot in COVID Calls, but usually from a North American perspective. So I'm really interested to get 
um, more of the sort of Australian and Asian perspective on that. What was this seminar about and what was your role? Yeah, so this seminar was a, um, a seminar with the Trans-Asia STS Network, and I would encourage anyone um, in the time zone of Scott and I or anywhere close to that, pretty much from, from India to New Zealand, um, join the network, uh, well, which is basically um, join, sign up to our Google group and get uh, reminders of uh, we have... Um, uh informal meetings uh where people present their work um particularly early career researchers and grad students uh and we always have people from from india singapore korea japan australia new zealand so it's a really um lovely place so yes thank you very much have a check that out you can actually look at um our friendly exciting meetings where we hear of the wonderful sts research going on in the region um, but this was one of our um, uh, seminars, public seminars, which we have streamed on the, our YouTube page that are on the um, Science and Society Network um, YouTube page. And this was Iwa Ong, uh, the, of course, Professor of Anthropology at Berkeley, um, who has been working on questions of vaccine nationalism and vaccine diplomacy in Asia. So, uh, and I'm sure this that work will be coming out uh, in some uh, form that we can all read and we'll have to look out for that. But yeah, she was exploring um, the, the politics of, of vaccines in the region. Uh, so from uh, the vaccine nationalism, of course, particularly of China, um, but really all countries that are trying to uh, use vaccines to further their diplomatic and uh, foreign relations interests. Um, vaccine diplomacy, which I suppose is, is a way that vaccine nationalism can be um, furthered. Um, and she was talking about uh, vaccine humanitarianism as a, a transnational virtue, which hopefully we've seen a little bit of uh, with the, the Biden administration and through, you know, COVAX, although that, of course, has been uh, way less effective as we as anyone would like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of the conceptual framework that she was um, setting out. So let's walk through some of these a little bit, just in terms of of what you've been paying attention to there. So vaccine nationalism. Um, this is, I mean, countries that are building their national reputation based on their ability to deliver the vaccine at home first, I suppose, and. So what I mean, I guess that would be we're talking about India here in in this sense in the Trans Asia STS region. What tell us a little bit about how that has played out? You know, the, what you discussed in the seminar are based other things that you're that you're watching. Is it has it actually built national identity? And how do you, how do we measure something like that? Yeah, well, she I think she was she wasn't working from field research, which is a problem for all of us anthropologists at the moment that we are kind of like um, doing our best and uh, using concepts like patchwork ethnography that have been um, risen in, in popularity because they really do uh, are what we have to try and um, uh, try and work with as best we can until we can get out in the field. But um, looking at, yeah, at, at Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia, 
um, and you know which countries are engaging with with Sinovac, with the Chinese vaccine. Um, Taiwan, of course, uh, has tried to develop its own vaccines, um, and but then uh, not so long ago accepted a, a big donation from Japan uh, of vaccines and uh, didn't want to you know accept Chinese vaccines. Um, so we have all those kind of um, you know, politics as usual in the region playing out. We've got uh, the uh, Sinovac in the Pacific, um, uh, which has been, uh, you know, really important. And the Pacific is a is a huge, of huge strategic importance moving forward. Um, and Australia has uh, not done nearly as much as it should have for the Pacific. Um, but and we have mostly been offering AstraZeneca vaccines, which we don't want anymore because of this very rare side effect. So all of that has been you know, highly uh, regrettable, I suppose. But I, in my kind of um, uh, discussing comments, I was thinking about the the, the biosocial um, influences that disrupt these vaccine politics. Should I tell you about those, Scott? Yes, please. Uh, and I, I just, yeah, I want to hear about that. And I'm thinking also, I want to put a pin in this and ask you about the Australian experience because, you know, there's the regional identity, but then there's the sort of Anglophone identity and whether, you know, if AstraZeneca is what you had there, how much does that have to do with just strong biomedical ties to the UK? So let's, let's come back to that, but, but talk a little bit more about, you know, what your, what your commentary had to do. Yeah. So I thought, think there's, there were four biosocial effects. I mean, there's plenty of, um, social effects uh, and socio-legal effects, so including you know patents, which is another complete travesty of of the 21st century, and something I think we will uh, all feel very bad about in the future. Um, but patents is not at all my area of expertise. But in terms of the biosocial effects, so we have um, uh, the firstly we have the variants, of course. So we have the uh, significantly less uh, efficacy against infection and spread because of the Delta variant when all the, our first generation of vaccines were based on the original, the OG. Uh, and this is you know, really affected our what, what the goal is. So living with COVID, um, especially in a place like Australia where we have, are coming from zero, uh, is you know it's because these vaccines um, do not massively, they massively prevent uh, hospitalisation and death, which is hugely important, but we all have to live with more transmission, um, which is, um, yeah, it's quite difficult and obviously then feeds the anti-vax movement as well. So the, the evolution of the virus, um, which of course we're constantly at risk of, particularly when we are doing such a bad job vaccinating many parts of the world, um, that, that is an ongoing fear. And I think that's what, in Australia, I think people are fearing, you know, what's coming next? What's the next variant? Are we going to have vaccine escape? So that's the first thing. The second thing is theatrogenesis or side effects. So, and I've discussed how, you know, AstraZeneca um, has these very rare side effects. Pfizer also has rare but not fatal side effects in, in young men. And so these um, very rare side effects, which are never going to be discovered in the trials because there's just not enough people, um, are you know, biosocial effects that then play into vaccine politics. 
Um, then you have uh, waning immunity. So I think we're all familiar with, you know, that we're all going to need booster shots and we just don't know um, what the future looks like. But again, that's something that no one really knew about or expected. Well, I'm sure people expected it, but it wasn't totally unclear how long the immunity will last. And that's another kind of part of the vaccine aesthetics, I like to think of it as, um, in Australia. So AstraZeneca was seen as, you know, the poor man's vaccine in a way, like you, everyone wanted Pfizer and people were waiting to get Pfizer, um, which was a huge problem. Um, uh, and so when it was shown, when it was found that uh, after about six months, AstraZeneca was actually better than Pfizer, because the waning immunity is is, is a this the, this gradient of the curve is steeper with Pfizer, mm. um, that kind of helped AstraZeneca with its uh, image, but then the fourth issue um, is vaccine expiry, which has been I think really quite interesting. So um, Australia has benefited from a number of vaccine swaps, uh, which have. Um, <laughs> made up a tiny bit for our complete inability to order enough vaccines and diversify enough with our vaccines. Um, and so a lot of that has happened because of the expiry date. So countries like whether the Singapore or the UK, we've got some for Poland as well, where the uh, expiry dates mean that they give us vaccine now and we'll give them some later on. So that mm. I really, um, it's, it's, I find it really exciting to think about these, these biosocial um, factors which uh, get in the way of countries' um, intentions in their vaccine diplomacy. I, there's so many issues that, that you raised there, each, each fascinating. And I, and I guess the, the other thing I'd be sort of curious to know, especially as you're sort of tracing it from country to country, is um, sort of the decision-making apparatus with this and how that varies from country to country. You know, this the relationship between maybe executive branch and then health officials who may be operating at a, at a federal level, but then also municipal leaders, you know, people in, in big, densely populated cities who are also trying to figure out how they're gonna manage vaccine rollout. I mean, you were talking about some of these problems, um, you know, across states, you know, within, and this happened in the United States as well, um, so I, you know, just to come down to some of these, um, issues you were just talking about the biosocial effects, can you also talk about the way you think about that in terms of decision makers? Like, you know, where's the right, I suppose, you know, locus of decision making with these kinds of things. We're talking about developing vaccines within a country. So our own vaccine nationalism, but then also when to ask and, and who to ask? I suppose if it's outside the country, that's at a very centralized federal level, but maybe not necessarily. I mean, maybe it's happening within countries as well. Can you expand on that part a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I did read that uh, I think Manitoba in Canada uh, went, you know, they got, they got their own vaccine supply um, outside the federal government, uh, which I thought was very interesting. So we haven't seen anything like that in Australia. I'm not sure if it would be possible in terms of uh, legislation even. Um, but uh, we certainly have seen variation in decision making between the states. So another iteration of what I mentioned before between Victoria, Melbourne and which Melbourne is the capital of and New South Wales where Sydney is the capital and there is a very long-standing kind of Melbourne-Sydney rivalry. Um, you know, it's a, I don't know if it's like 
yeah, it's like a New York LA rivalry in a way that will just never go away. Um, but we are much closer together geographically than Melbourne and LA. So, you know, <laughs> we can, we can be even more in competition. Um, and Sydney thinks that they are, you know, hands down the best. So, um, but, uh, and the New South Wales, New South Wales has a conservative government. So New South Wales is the only state jurisdiction or we have two territories and, and six states, but the only jurisdiction where um, the health orders are signed by the health minister. Um, everywhere else it's by the chief health officer. So the uh, bureaucracy basically of the health department and our um, public health experts, they are the ones that, that actually um, decide what the public health orders are going to be when we go into lockdown whether we'll wear masks outside or inside um, and so on and what the vaccination levels are going to have to be for particular um, restrictions to be lifted. New South Wales, it's actually the health, it's the, the health minister, the, the politician, not the uh, public health experts. And this is, yeah, it's been very controversial. Um, and the, the, the former, now former Premier of New South Wales, was very uh, specific in her language that she listens to the health advice and also advice from the you know, business leaders. That was very clear all the way through. Right. I had um, epidemiologist Greg Gonsalves on uh, COVID calls last week, and he's been very publicly critical of the Biden administration in the United States. And it's unwillingness to pursue the issue of intellectual property um, freedom uh, for the mRNA vaccines, and uh, and also it's sort of uh, foot dragging to try to even use diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy, with close allies, not not to mention other people in the world, other countries in the world which may not be allies or close allies. And you know, I think it's I don't know how much that stings to the Biden administration or how much they pay attention to that. But that, you know, the Biden administration's arrival in the United States was supposed to be the turn to science and the turn back to some sort of sense of participation in a global community. And it's been just as disappointing. I mean, maybe doubly disappointing to those, and I count myself among them, who thought that might be an opening um, to make vaccine intellectual property more available. Where, where do you come down on that? Well, I um, mean, Australia is a very minor player in these questions and will, I think our, our Prime Minister has <clears throat> publicly come out uh, for, uh, you know, removing um, patents from vaccines, but I don't know if his opinion really matters a lot. Um, you know, clearly, I mean, India, our, our neighbour, is really, you know, where all the action is and South Africa for um for producing uh you know pharmaceuticals the situation in south korea is one where um the president of south korea went to the united states to have these these discussions and the response was yes we will offer a vaccine but it's for your military mm. Uh, which again, I mean, we come into this sort of vaccine diplomacy sort of situation. And I mean, you don't have to be too cynical to look at that and say, yes, the United States is willing to uh, make vaccine available to allies, but only when it serves the national security interests of the United States. So it's again, it's another layer, which is maybe not surprising 
And I suppose people who think that disasters reorder the world, it might be surprising, but in many ways, those continuities are what I'm noticing throughout this time. Yeah, and I think that's that's been the, the um, experience in Australia that is, is has highlighted all of the inequalities that were already there. Um, in each, each time we've had major outbreaks, they have started in uh, rich areas of the city and then moved into poorer areas where our um where people have uh, casualized labor where they're working uh, in fields like insecurity in aged care um and they very quickly move um from between households and they're between industries which are all um poorly paid so that's been one i mean at the start of the vaccine i wrote a piece about um uh p panic socialism <laughs> like panic buying and mm -hmm. that it was incredible we had free childcare, we had you know a bas basic minimum wage which we have but it, uh, you know was much better we, we basically doubled our unemployment we did double our unemployment benefits um we had uh, a lot of scrutiny on the you know massive casualized um uh, workforce which is you know, highly insecure and you know, wasn't, able, wasn't able to get sick leave, so still had to go to work when they were sick and spread the virus. So all of these long, long-standing issues, homelessness is another one, suddenly were, were cured. And I still in my um, optimistic moments, I've, we've had, I feel that we've had a dress rehearsal for climate change. Um, people are talking about you know, listening to the experts, listening to the scientists. Um, in the context of COVID and then trying to um, translate that to climate change. And uh, let's hope. Just to circle back on that for a second. So the many different social areas there that were met with response and legislation. So did that end life and democracy in Australia? No, <laughs> we owe a lot of money. We have a massive, massive deficit. But apparently that's okay because interest rates are very low. So, look, right. I, I'm sure you've had economists on and I want to get more of them on because apparently you can just print money and it's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, again, I think it's, it's a really great uh, dress rehearsal for climate change where we are going to have to do massive spending and people are asking, well, if we can uh, completely change our social structures to address COVID, we can do it to save the climate. And I'm saying that as Australia uh, is, um, we were just, our Prime Minister was was debating whether or not to go to the, the Glasgow meeting that's just about to happen. Um, and our kind of more far right um, coalition partner has just extracted many, many tens of billions of dollars of, of um, promises to uh, so that they will agree to a net zero target of 2050. So the climate politics in Australia are absolutely abysmal, but um, we did have free childcare for a while, so there is hope. Yeah, that, and I hear your I hear your hopefulness there, and I think it's worth rescuing. You know, people may have forgotten what was gathering headlines just before the pandemic, um, which were the tremendous and horrifying fires in Australia which I felt had, once again, I think you know, news media has stopped sort of debating whether or not any individual disaster is somehow connected to climate change. I think in many obvious cases, we don't wait to hear from science on that. We said, well, just 
you know, intuitively this is so. Um, and then that went directly into the pandemic, which of course is in so many ways connected with the world that has has been that we have made that has made climate change real. So I'm with yeah. you. I'm hopeful too that we can be smart enough to make those conceptual leaps. We we're almost out of time. We've talked about um I mean, I love this conversation because you're doing so many different things. I mean, we talked about indigenous DNA and we've talked about um, this recent meeting that you had and talked about vaccine nationalism um, and sovereignty. So just, you know, now as you come out of lockdown, having broken the record you never wanted to, to break, uh, you're going to be in the field again, presumably as an anthropologist. So you, you talked about the book that's coming out, other work and, and maybe maybe ways just as we're closing up ways that you think that this period of time has changed the way you might practice anthropology. Yeah. Um, again, pretty soon, <laughs> um, <clears throat> many canceled trips, uh, and we still don't know when international travel is going to happen. So it's really hard for anyone outside New Zealand and Australia to understand the level of, uh, just the complete lack of travel. Like anyone leaving Australia, it's extremely difficult to leave. It's extremely difficult to come back. Uh, and, and the, you know, you certainly can't leave for field research. That is not an acceptable reason. Someone has to be kind of dying or, you know, you have to have a spouse overseas or something like that. And, you know, even there's, you know, being children with their who were you know visiting family visiting their families in India with their grandparents and their parents are in Australia and they haven't been able to come back for a year so just unbelievable um isolation so field but field research for me is within Australia so it is uh, more within reach although our international borders will be open probably before some of our state borders because we have some states where there is, uh, has been no COVID and there is a lot of pressure on them not to um, allow people from other states. So, um, but I do, I've got um, a number of, of projects. Um, I will be travelling to the north of Western Australia, which is really exciting on a, on a new project that is going to be getting underway. Um, and I'm, yeah, really looking forward to some sunshine, some time in the field, and some normally. I just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. This week is a little different. Uh, many of the COVID calls this week will be on Korea time. Please join me uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, October 26th at 5.30, excuse me, at 6 p.m. Tuesday, October 26th at 6 p.m. for my discussion with STS researcher Hyoman Kim. And we'll be talking about vaccine issues in South Korea. So please do join me for that. And I want to thank my guest, Emma Koval, um, for this wide ranging, really interesting discussion today. And um, I guess I can, you know, on behalf of everybody else, like welcome out of lockdown. Welcome to you. And uh, I hope you get to do those things that you're talking about getting back in the field because we need more of your work. Uh, so thanks, Emma. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.